about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. You're a Knockout, a podcast for your inner badass. <laughs>
going on five years ago. Um, and so typically pre-COVID, what I would do is I would spend most of my year starting usually in January. Tyson, you can't have beers. Uh, by the way, I am recording at home today because Moranis Moss music is out of town. And um, I'm not at Timeless because I thought that that would be really strange to just ramble about something so personal um, with an audience. <laughs> so, um, and also if you hear some weird fart noises, I'm just sitting in this little leather chair and I'm anxious, so I'm squirming a lot. Anyway, I usually spend the majority of my year um, doing fundraising and working to organize a local 5K. It's called Breathe Deep Cincinnati. It's at Theodore Friendship Park usually every year. Um, it's a super beautiful park in Cincinnati. If you've never been there, you should totally check it out. Um, it's literally my little oasis when I'm stressed out or just need to get away from the world. Um, I usually go for a run down there or take Tyson, my rescue dog down there. Um, and like this nonprofit, like I really feel like truly saved my life. Um, so it's also like a good place to go where I would throw this event and just kind of, um, like sit with myself and just feel like, I don't know, I just feel really connected to that park. It's really beautiful. It runs along the river and especially in the fall, it's gorgeous because of all the foliage and there's so many trees and it's just such a peaceful place. And the 5k typically runs all the way to like the Reds, um, stadium, like right close to there and then back. Um, so it's a super gorgeous event. Um, so typically I spend the year working with a team, of myself and um, initially it started out with three other women that lost moms to lung cancer and then I had lost my dad to lung cancer and then now um, it was myself another girl who lost her mom to lung cancer who's also local and then a local nurse that actually works really closely with like lung cancer screenings and lung cancer patients so it's been really amazing to have her on our team because she connects us to all the hospitals and um, nurses and doctors as we always have like a doctor speak at our event and um, it's like super cool to be able to have her to get in touch also with um, like uh, local survivors and people like that too that we want at our event or people that um, need to know about us she can connect with so it's amazing um, <clears throat> so we usually spend the year planning that there's a lot that goes into it we also have the help of um, our national organization that we're a branch off of. So Longevity is the name of the national nonprofit. And then Breathe Deep is like their, or their events. So there's like Breathe Deep Cincinnati. There's a Breathe Deep like Chicago. And there's um, a lot of cities that have those now. But Longevity is our main um, like nonprofit that we work with. So they help us and help us organize things and get things together such as like park permits and all the paperwork that we have to do and then we organize everything from um getting the park for like securing the date um porter potties dj's sound systems um prizes for raffles um tents for all the vendors um what else anything that you'd see there like bottled water, snacks, soup. We'd always like 
try to have like a bunch of food and snacks for people. All of that we're responsible getting. Obviously, sponsors were huge because since we are a nonprofit, we don't have the funds to throw these events. So we rely solely on donations. Um, so we were responsible for securing those throughout the year. Um, what else do we do? Oh, and then we would throw events throughout the year too to try and fundraise in the meantime. So it would take, it's, it's a lot of work, not to mention like the day of you're setting everything up, um, organizing the shirts, which is like a whole job in and of itself and getting those to all the right sizes. And we have different shirts for everyone. So survivors are always in green. Um, then we have just like, uh, other people that show up, the like participants that could be friends, family, caregivers, whatever, they're in blue. And then all of our volunteers are always in orange, um, which orange, green, and blue are the colors of the nonprofit. So yeah, it, a lot goes into it. It's pretty crazy. So yeah, on top of all of that, obviously we have to market and find people to show up to our event, <laughs> which requires us um getting on the news and trying to talk to local um tv stations and things like that radio stations to get us on um yeah if you guys remember brad johansson so our first year um i do have twitter i never use it i only ever use it to complain at companies <laughs> call me karen i don't care it works um, so I used that basically to harass Brad Johansson in a nice, friendly, funny way. But, um, basically he used to work for a local station, Channel 12, and he covered, um, a story of a local girl, um, Lauren Hill, who was battling DIPG, which is, um, like a brain tumor in, um, kids, so he had, like, followed her story through her whole, like, diagnosis. And then when she sadly passed away and, like, all of the fundraising that she had done, she had raised so much money and so much awareness to the disease. She was truly a little angel. Um, and I remember literally watching the story with my dad. And my dad, all well, like, we didn't even know that, like, while we were watching this story unfold, that he was actually terminally ill at the time. And we didn't know. Um, but my dad and I would follow that story together and I remember watching with it, him with it all the time and I remember him just like he really like thought a lot of Brad Johansson for covering the story. So um, year one, I was just like, I have to get Brad Johansson to MCR event because to me it was just like, okay, I need to get like a bigger name from the city to get at our event to raise more awareness so people actually give a shit like whose face do people recognize that they can associate with this cause. So I was blowing him up on Twitter, blowing him up, blowing him up. BRMC, like, I lost my dad to lung cancer. He loved your story with Lauren Hell. It was such an inspirational story. You did such a great job with it. Um, she was such an angel. Like, I would love to shed the same light on this sort of disease, you know, yada, yada, yada. So finally, after my persistence, he um, asked to call me. So he called me and it was so crazy. I remember I was working in logistics at the time and I saw his number come over and I was like, holy shit. And I ran outside and I talked to Brad Johansson on the phone and he was like, all right. He was really funny. And he was just like, all right, all right. So what's the scoop? Like, so what do you, what's your story? What do you, what do you want? How do you want me to help? And I told him a little bit about my dad and about my story. And I was like, look, I'm new to this. Like, I'm not the type of person that 
um, goes on TV and talks about things or, you know, does like volunteer work to this level. Like I'm really out of my depth right now, but I just know that I have to do something. I've just experienced this loss that I can't even explain. Um, and the only way I know how to fill this hole in my heart is to do something about it and make sure this doesn't happen to other people. Um, and he said, you know, what's really interesting is it's not something that I really talk about, but I actually lost my dad to lung cancer and it was like 20 some years ago or something. And it was just like a holy shit moment. Like, oh my God, like almost like a full circle moment in a way. Um, like, oh my God, I used to watch you all the time on TV with my dad and here I am talking to you about my dad and then you've also experienced the same uh, painful loss. So we instantly had a bond. We would talk all the time, email back and forth and um, he would get me airtime. So he got me in. It was, there was some crazy shit going on in Cincinnati at the time. So it was like impossible to get airtime because they were always covering some shit going down in the city. So I remember it was so last minute. I was actually on my way to Indianapolis. I was in the back of an Uber. I was, I was in Indianapolis. I'd just gotten there, got into an Uber and was headed to a comedy show last minute. Um, when I got a call from the station telling me, um, can you be in the station? There's an opening slot for the morning news. If you can be there at like, I think I had to be there at like seven or 8 a.m. And I was like, hell yeah. So here I am all the way in Indy. But I was so excited. Like I, I remember sitting at this comedy show and I was just like buzzing the whole time, like just from like adrenaline and excitement. Like, holy shit, dude, this is actually happening. I'm going to be on the news tomorrow to like talk about my cousin, talk about my dad. Like this is incredible. Um, and then I remember just being like, oh my God, like <laughs> we're going to be out so late. I'm going to have to get up so early. I'm going to look like shit. I don't think I really even slept that night because I was just so afraid to oversleep and I was just so excited. Um, so I got to the station and they interviewed myself and Sammy, which is another girl that works with longevity with me and um, well, Breathe Deep Cincinnati. And um, it was just the craziest thing as I was talking to some of the anchors and then just like going through the station and just seeing faces that you've seen on the news. It was just like bizarre. Like, Oh my God, I wish my dad could see this. This is so wild. Like how, how am I even doing this right now? Um, which although also I forgot to mention that Brad Johansson had agreed to MC. And so he was just like, all right, well we got to promote this thing now. And I was like, okay, well how about like, can you get me some airtime? Can you come and like cover the event like what can we do here and then even like years following where he didn't MC, like all I'd have to do is email him before he left the station and um because I think he moved to like South Carolina or something and it was really sad but um he would like even if he couldn't get me into the station he'd pull like the old um like recording of me and they'd chop it up and then he would talk about like the updated event details and like talk a little bit about it. So it was just like the coolest thing. He was just like such a genuine dude. And um, I remember the first event was so fucking cold, man. It was freezing. And I think like the week before it was like it was in November right around Thanksgiving as well. I think it was like November 20th when we had our first event. And the weekend prior to that had been like 70s or like something just real ridiculous, like uns like unseasonal. 
Was that um, a word? <laughs> um, it was something very obscure. Let's just say that. Um, and then the next weekend, literally when we were waiting, because we would get to the um, the venue like before the sun was even up. So we were there watching these guys deliver our tables and chairs and some tents and shit. And it was snowing. <laughs> And I remember him just showing up and his nose was so red and he was like bundled up with earmuffs and stuff. And he's like, you picked a real warm day. And then like I introduced him to my mom and sister and it was just like a really fucking cool thing. So like we got to work with him and that really helped like get us exposure for that. And it was just that was my first experience with connecting, connecting with someone that had also had that same loss that you wouldn't expect. And it was something that would continue over the years like It's one of those things that people say, like, say you want a white car and then all of a sudden, once you're looking for a white car, you see them everywhere. And it's like, were you are you just paying attention now or were they always there? And if that makes sense. um, But ever since I've gotten involved working with lung cancer, like I said, like initially when my dad was diagnosed, I didn't know anyone that had gone through this shit before. Um, And since then, like, not even, like, the people that I meet at the events, but so many fucking people around me. Like, I think that it was, like, I think it was the year that my dad passed away, which was 2016. My cousin, who was only 50 years old, she got diagnosed as well, and she ultimately passed away. Um, So it was just, like, I just almost, I almost felt like I was, like, um a magnet for it but it's just one of those things like once you realize that it's something you realize like how much of it's really going on because like there's a light that's um you know gonna shed on all the shit that's happening I feel like I'm rambling but there's a lot of stuff to cover here so let's go to let's just get down to like a little bit of lung cancer first before I tell you my story um So this month is all about lung cancer, and unlike October, when you see the NFL rep in pink, and you see Save the Tatas, and pink everywhere, and pink shampoos and conditioners where proceeds will go to Susan G. Komen, and you'll see bakeries selling pink ribbon cookies, and Buskin will sell pink ribbon shit, and everything which is amazing but why don't you see that in november for lung cancer month when lung cancer is actually the number one cancer killer worldwide and kills twice the amount of people or twice the amount of women um that breast cancer does so why don't people talk about this the reason why is because there is a huge fucking stigma with lung cancer um Yeah, it's real fucked up. So basically the way people look at it is, oh, well, these people were smokers, so they did it to themselves. Like, they should have known better, whatever. Like, boo-hoo, we don't feel for them. They smoked themselves to death. But guess what, gang? Turns out that 60 to 65% of all new lung cancer diagnoses are people who've never smoked or quit years ago. So... It's a false, um, it's a false stigma. Like it's, it's a stigma obviously for a reason, but it's fucked up because here's why. There's a lot of businesses that actually won't sponsor or get involved with lung cancer. 
um, nonprofits or fundraisers and things like that because they feel like they're um, not promoting smoking, but like siding with the smoker. Um, so they won't help out, not realizing like the actual magnitude of this disease. Um, and also the, the most fun part for me, and it continues to happen five years later, people, when they find out that my dad had lung cancer, they'll pause and go, oh, but did he smoke? And when I say yes, or if I say yes, now I usually just say it doesn't matter. And then they're just like makes it more uncomfortable for them, which at first used to make me uncomfortable. But now it's like, fuck you. That's a really inappropriate question. Um, You wouldn't go to Children's Hospital and ask a child what they had done to receive cancer. You wouldn't ask uh, your friend diagnosed with breast cancer what she did. Did you wear your bra too tight? Did you tan topless in the sun? Hey, who gives a fuck? Nobody deserves it. It could happen to anybody, and it's just as likely to happen to you as it is to anybody else. And you have to remember, too, that when our parents were growing up, that generation, it was fashionable. Like, you watch old movies and you see people like Marilyn Monroe smoking. It was fashionable. It was classy. It was just that was people didn't understand the risks behind it. I mean, we could say the same shit about tanning beds. How many of you guys got in tanning beds? You know, I did it. So what? If I get melanoma someday, is it just like, fuck Rachel, who gives a shit? Like, she tanned? She should have known better? No, that was like the cool thing. Like, you don't think about it. You're young and naive and think this will never happen to me. That doesn't mean that you deserve it. So, yeah, there's a lot of people that look at people and think they did this to themselves when that's really not even true. So the team that I worked with for Breathe Deep Cincinnati, actually my, out of all um, four of us, my parent was the only one that smoked. The other ones were super healthy, ran marathons even, Um, super health conscious people, active people that never smoked at all, that none of these women smoked and they still got it. Um, basically if you have lungs, you can get lung cancer. It doesn't matter if you smoke or not. Um, obviously it increases your chances and, uh, don't fucking do it, but, um, it doesn't mean that that person deserves it and they shouldn't be made to feel that way. And people shouldn't make you feel, um, like your grief also isn't warranted because, of that as well. There are so many people that you could instantly, if they were like, oh, he smoked, oh, and then they would just kind of like give you this look like, oh, well, like you could, you could watch, literally watch their sympathy, which I don't need, but you could watch it evaporate right before your eyes. Like they just, their empathy just vanished. And um, my sister actually had the, her first experience with that. I'll never forget. She was at a deli. And like I said, like my mom and my sister, they don't publicly talk about it. Um, this is like my my way of healing. Um, they support me through all of this and stuff, but like you'll never see them talking at the 5K or like sharing their story or like mingling and telling like sharing war stories with people like that's they're there for me, but that's like really difficult for them. So I remember my sister was really proud after my first event and she was wearing her Breathe Deep Cincinnati shirt and this woman approached her and like asked her about it. And I remember my sister telling me how proud she got because she was like, oh, this is great. Rachel will be proud that like I'm taking this opportunity to educate someone like I'm going to talk to them about it. And they pulled that same shit to my sister like, oh, but did he smoke? And my sister had her first experience with that. And she was just like, I can't believe that you are able to talk about this all the time because people are fucking dicks. Like, they act like he deserved it. And I was like, oh, yeah, I know. But 
all that does is just add more fuel to my fire because it's these same people that are just like, I don't know. It, it just it makes me that much more motivated to like show them that that's not the fucking case and that these people need your help. Um, yeah, so here's a few more stats for you. So one in 16 people in the U.S. will be diagnosed with lung cancer in their lifetime. More than 228,000 people in the U.S. will be diagnosed with lung cancer this year with a new diagnosis every 2.3 minutes. Like I said before, 60 to 65% of all lung cancer diagnoses are among, are among people who have never smoked or are former smokers. Um, 10 to 15% of new lung cancer cases are among never smokers, so they never smoked at all. Um, let's see. So the biggest thing that longevity is working towards and what our fundraising goes to, not only are we helping um, lung cancer patients and their caregivers and family and that with like support resources and things like that, but we're trying to raise money for early detection. So the biggest thing right now is there's no real screening for early detection. So, and it wasn't the case of my dad, is that typically once you are showing symptoms for lung cancer, you're already in the late stages and there's not much that they can do at that point. Um, At that point, they're just basically trying to maintain your cancer um, and extend your life for as long as they can, but there's no, it's terminal. Like there's no, there's no curing it. It's just trying to make you um, live with it, like trying to give you the ability to, um, give you a longer life. Um, and what's really crazy is I remember seeing like the stats when my dad first got diagnosed and saying, seeing like the percentage of people that lived up to five years. And I remember having like a full out breakdown with my sister, like five years, that's like no time at all. Like five years, like I'm not dating anyone like surely I'm not going to meet the love of my life, be married and like have my dad see my babies in five years. Um, And I was so devastated by that. Little did I know I had like six to seven months from diagnosis to um, when he passed away. So fuck, I wish I had five years, you know, Um, and then really looking at the reality of that. Like, did I really want him to go through treatment for five years? Probably not because that's a lot and that's torture in and of itself. But um, anyway, so early detection is what they're really trying to do. Because obviously, say, if you're a woman listening to this, you know that we go get screenings um, every year for ovarian cancer. We get um, breast exams to check for like lumps for breast cancer, whatever. If you're older, um, once you reach, I think it's like Someone told me not too long ago that once you're like in your 40s now that you can start getting mammograms, um, maybe if it's just if it runs in your family, because I always thought it was at 50. But either way, there's these things that are in place that are regular screenings for things, especially if you're high risk, if like breast cancer or ovarian cancer runs in your family, obviously you're going to get screened more often. Um, there's nothing like that in place for lung cancer. So typically what happens is I've heard a lot of stories where like, the cancer was found because someone broke a rib and then they go in and get a, a x-ray and then that's where the the cancer's found or someone goes in for another operation and they find this cancer or someone's sick because of something else and then they go and 
but there's not really the funding um, to do all of what we need for early detection. So like I said, like when my dad's was found, he was already in stage four. Um, and then at that point, there's no operating um, at least in his case, there was no way to like remove it or operate, which was my initial thought. Like, okay, cool. I've, I've known of stories of people that had cancer and they got it like cut out and then they recovered and then it was fine. Um, I thought that that was going to be that easy, but lung cancer is super aggressive. It's a really, really ugly disease. And it's one of those things that I could explain it until I'm blue in the face, but it's not something that you can fully understand until you see someone that you love go through it. Um, you know, I, especially your dad, like you look at your dad and especially when you're the little girl and you think, um, he's like your superhero, right? Like your dad is like the biggest, baddest, strongest dad. Even if like, that's not the case to the rest of the world. When you're like the baby girl, no matter how old you get, like your dad is Superman. Like that's just the way it is. And especially for me, I always felt that way with my dad because he grew up in OTR um, when he was a kid, you know, before it was cool to go down there when it was super fucking dangerous and super run down. And, um, you know, he grew up in poverty and basically raised himself. So my dad just, he had a lot of grit and, was like the toughest person I've ever been around and most, um, what's the word? He'd just been through a lot of shit and he just like would just keep going. Like nothing ever knocked him down. He had been through so much and yeah, he was a real, like a little jaded, but then he was also like the biggest marshmallow when it came to like me and my sister, like the little kids in the neighborhood that would come, you know, talk to him and, whatever, when he would porch sit, like, I don't know. So like, for me, my dad was like extra tough as nails. He was a greaser back in the day. And he would tell me all these stories about bar fights. And then if you've listened to the past podcast with my mom, you know about the story that a guy tried to break into our, um, or my parents' apartment and my dad beat the shit out of this guy and he did not break into the apartment. Like there's just crazy stories about my dad. So like when you see someone who you think there is never anything that is going to break this man, um, suddenly do that, and suddenly you're helping take care of this person and making sure they eat, making sure they get up and walk around. Um, I remember one time at the hospital, I was there and I was signing paperwork for him, for the nurses, and I remember thinking, oh, this is weird. I thought I'd be a lot older than... I am right now. I think it was 26 or 27 at the time. Like, damn, I thought I would be so much older in this position right now where they're giving me instructions for my dad because he's like so drugged up on whatever medicine that they've given him that, you know, he's thinks that he's at the house. I remember I remember that was the most fucked up day. He was in the hospital bed and I'm only going to share a few of these stories. It's really personal and he wouldn't like it. So, uh but I remember he was like laying in bed in the hospital bed. And then he, it was really, it's cute to think about because this is what he would always do. He would like turn onto the side of the, like he'd sit up and get on like the side of the bed. Like he was sitting on the edge of it. 
and then he'd go to stand up. And that's what he'd do at home, too. It's like his room was upstairs, so he'd just be like, all right, I'm going upstairs. So he spun that same way, and I was like, where are you going, Dad? And he's like, oh, I'm going upstairs. And I was like, oh, yeah, for what? And he's like, I'm going to go lay down. So he thought that he was, like, at our house. I was like, oh, Dad, like, why don't you just sit back down, just kick back right where you are? Like, you can just sit back right there. And then he looked at me, like, confused. And he was like, oh, okay. And then he sat down and laid back down. And I did that so many times with him because he kept thinking that he was at home. Or he'd ask where my mom was or, like, you know, whatever. Um, And that was just, like, a really weird time because, like, I remember watching my mom go through this with her mom. But my mom was in her 80s, and my mom was much older than me, had a family of her own, married, whatever. And here I am in my 20s, like, I'm essentially, like, trying to take care of my dad right now. Like, I'm watching over him until, like, my mom gets to the hospital because, like, none of our family is here right now. And, like, he's out of it, and I'm trying to make sure that he, like, knows what the fuck's going on. Um, so, yeah, that was a really weird time. Um... I don't know where I was going with that. Oh, so basically just like being in that situation and seeing someone that was so strong um, suddenly need you a little bit is real crazy. It's a real mind fuck because your dad is the person that you always run to when shit gets crazy. Like when I had my break in at my apartment, the first person I wanted to call was my dad and I couldn't even when he passed away. I remembered feeling so helpless, helpless and lost because I was like, fuck. Usually when things get really fucked up, I go to him because he's seen it all. Like he's been through so many crazy things. He's had best friends die. He's lost family. He's, you know, he's been through everything that you could imagine. And I was like, man, this is the most fucked up thing I've ever experienced And I can't talk to him about it. Like, who do I talk to about it? And obviously, like, my family, but we're all going through it. And he was just the one person that when things were really out of control, he'd be the one that I'd go to. And not being able to talk to him. And even since then, like, so many things that have happened, like, it's a really eye-opening thing. And it just shows you how crazy this shit is and how aggressive it is and like I said it took him in about six to seven months um so it's just one of those things that like I just feel like he always had my back um growing up and was always like the protector of our family and like now that he's gone I just almost feel like that torch has been passed on to me I feel like very protective over lung cancer patients um and people that have been through it, I feel really protective over him, which is why I won't share um, a lot of the stories when he was really sick, because that's like a really private, personal thing that like is pretty sacred to me. I don't talk about it. Um, it's really hard to talk about. Um, but it's just one of those things like that's between me and my dad, you know. Um, but now I just feel like that's kind of my purpose is to like now it's like my turn to like look after him you know he can't tell people how bad this shit can get I just remember one time I was sitting watching westerns with him which was like his favorite he loved westerns and we were watching this movie and he just apologized to me and said like I'm so sorry 
he called me Bugs, so he's like, I'm just, I'm so sorry, Bugs. Like, I wish I wouldn't have smoked. I don't understand these people. And he was talking to me about when he would go get his chemo, that there would be some people that would take smoke breaks. And he's like, I don't understand. Like, why are you getting this treatment? And then you're just going to keep doing it. Like, you're going to go out and then just kill yourself. Like, why are you even here then? Um, And he was like, I know it's an addiction, whatever. Like, I've been there, but, like, I can't. I don't know how they did that. Like, I wish I could take it back and, like, apologize to me. And if you knew my dad, like, that was, like, now that I say that out loud, I think that's probably the only time that I ever heard an apology from him because normally if like we got into an argument or something his way of saying sorry or like keeping the peace was hey bugs you hungry (laughs) and he'd feed me and we'd eat and that was like our bonding thing like cooking together and watching the food network and he was such a badass cook and like he would cook whip some like a special snack up or something and that was like his apology or he'd slide a note under my door or something. That was, like, the way he did it. But that was, like, the first time um, he really said sorry. And so that just shows you, man. Like, it's just, it's really crazy. I feel protective of these people. And that's basically why I got involved with longevity. Um, wow, I really went on a tangent there. Hopefully I didn't lose all you guys now. Um, more stats. Lung cancer is the leading cause of cancer death, regardless of gender or ethnicity, taking about 154,000 American lives each year. Um, more lives are lost to lung cancer than to colorectal, breast, and prostate cancers all combined. Um, lung cancer has been the leading cancer killer of women since 1987, killing almost 1.5 times, so one and a half times. It wasn't quite two. Um, one and a half times as many women as breast cancer. And only 21% of people diagnosed with lung cancer will survive five years or more. But if it's caught before it spreads, the, the chance of five-year survival improves dramatically. So, yeah, that's the stat that I saw when my dad was sick. And I was like, oh, my God, if we're lucky, it's only a 21% chance that he'll see five years or more. Like, what the fuck? And I remember my sister being like, yeah, Rachel, he's really sick. And I just didn't want to believe it. And I was like, my dad gets through everything. He's superhuman. Nothing kicks him down. Like, this is going to be fine. But, yeah, like I said, we had about six to seven months. And that's been about the standard of what I've heard from other people. The craziest thing was when I was working in logistics, I was working with this guy. He was in my cubicle. And it's actually really funny. If you're listening to this, um, you've never heard this story. And hopefully it doesn't offend you. But I remember we were moving to this new office from Blue Ash to Northern Kentucky. And I was so excited because it was right by my apartment. Um, And when they showed, like, the seating arrangement, some people in the office were like, oh, no, you're sitting next to that guy. Like, he's really mean. Like, he's always yelling on the phone and... Blah, blah, blah. Like, I guess he had a reputation for being a hard ass, which those are usually my favorite type of people. So I made it my personal mission to make him my friend. And it worked. Um, (laughs) um, We sat next to each other. We would bitch to each other all the time. Just joke, listen to music. Like, he was just a cool dude. He'd tell me all about his fiance. And they were always traveling and doing cool shit. So he was just like a really cool guy to talk to, um, especially because I was dealing. I My dad got diagnosed two weeks into me working at this new job. So basically the entire time that all these people knew me. 
Yeah, so I was dealing with some pretty heavy shit. My dad actually got diagnosed when I was in the middle of training for this job. So that was a treat um, to start a new job and try and like have a happy face and then know what was going on at home. Um, so it was really nice to be around someone that was like real. Um, and he was blunt as hell and just like such a cool dude. Like he wasn't trying to just be like, I don't know what I expected in like a corporate setting. Like people just kissing ass and whatever. He was just awesome. Um, so what was crazy, there was a point, sorry, if you just hear Tyson being loud, um, because we're recording at home, and this is why we don't like to record at home, because you start barking at the garbage man, which he did before, and I had to cut that out. <laughs> That's okay. I love you. Um, so anyway, there was a fundraiser that my work was letting me do where there was a day that you could dress down. It was like Friday was casual day where you could wear jeans, but you could also wear jeans on Thursday, I believe, if you paid like $3 or something. Um... So naturally people would do that. And every so often, like the money would go to a charity and like you got the vote on a charity. So I got to get them to donate to my 5K and they were like whatever they raised, the company was going to match to. I forget how much they did, but it was a decent amount of money. Um, And so anyway, the guy next to me, my new buddy, actually I remember donated And I remember thinking, oh, man, everybody thinks that he's such a tough guy or, like, hard to talk to or, you know, isn't, like, the most approachable dude. And then here he did. And it was funny because he didn't even tell me that he did it. I would get emails um, saying, like, oh, someone has joined your team or you've received a donation. Congratulations. And it would tell me who. And I remember just, like, looking at him like, oh, my God, I can't believe you just donated because I got the um, email. So very long story short, I lose my job there and he reaches out to me not long after and tells me that his dad was diagnosed with lung cancer and oh, it was like the worst thing. It was almost like reliving my dad's journey all over again because he was following at my dad's footsteps the same way. They were like the same age and it was like a really rapid decline. Like he went from, you know, working and from my understanding, I think he did like manual labor. So like he went from like actually being like a real hard working man to like, you know, having a hard time getting around and stuff too, because it just, just once it takes over, it just takes over. Um, and I remember, I remember it feeling really good to be able to be supportive of him and like give him little hacks like, Hey, if your dad's not eating, try this. Um, my dad loved heated blankets or like, these pillows are the bomb. My dad loved these pillows or, um, get a space heater. My dad would get really cold. Like I would give him like little tips like that. Um, and you know, he'd ask me questions a lot about different things that was going on and stuff. And, um, I don't know. It was, it was nice to be able to be there, but it was extra heartbreaking when his dad actually ended up passing away because, it was one of those things that I didn't want to believe that it was going to happen, but I just kind of knew I knew where it was headed just based on the things that he was telling me and just watching someone else's heartbreak um, in that way. You know, he hadn't been married yet. Um, and like his dad wasn't going to be there for that. It was just a really fucking hard thing to see someone else go through. Um, and then like going to the funeral and everything like it, it felt good to 
not good to be there, but I felt proud to be there because I don't know. It was, I don't know. I just felt like I was doing it for my dad in a way like, Hey, I understand I've been here because when that happened for me, uh, I didn't have anyone around me that really understood. Um, actually two of my best friends abandoned me during that time. So that was really cool. Um, They started getting kind of distant before this happened, and I don't know, like, when you're going through that, I knew something was up with my dad, but I didn't know what yet, and I'm the type of person where I'm always trying to be the strong friend. I don't want sympathy. I don't want anyone to baby me. I don't want to be helped. I don't want to need anyone. Um, It's uh, one of my personality flaws that I've been working on. Um, trying to ask for help, learning that that's a strength, not a weakness. But anyway, that's one of the things that's ingrained in me. And a lot of times that I would, how I would work through that is just like, instead of telling my friends, Hey, I'm hurting and I need you. It would be like, let's go out. Let's go do this. Let's go do that. Let's go here. Let's go out. Let's go to the bars. Let's go here. Anything to just keep myself distracted and not being vulnerable. And, um, one of the girls had actually lost her mom to cancer right after we graduated high school. So I really thought that she would understand. Um, and they both started getting a little distant. It was probably because, you know, when they wouldn't go out or like there was a lot of times it was just like they would, they weren't going out with me anymore and I really needed them. So like I didn't freak out or anything, but it's like, of course I'd be disappointed or maybe get an attitude. Um, I'm sure I did that and it was totally misdirected, but I thought it would be better when I reached out to them, kind of explaining why, like, hey, I'm sorry that things have been fucking crazy. My dad just got diagnosed with cancer. Um, Like, I really need my friends right now. And they didn't answer. (laughs) So, or, and like the one that had lost her mom to cancer, she said something really cold, like, I'm sorry. But, like, didn't say, like, I'm here for you or do you need the talk or anything. And there's so many times. And her mom had been, like, gone for years and years, which now I know is, like, doesn't matter. It's still always just as painful. But, like, I sat there and let her cry about her mom so many times. She talked about her mom all the time. If she needed a night out, I would go. If she just wanted to sit there and, like, talk about it and have a night in. I would be there. And then I was like, holy shit, now I'm living through this and the person that I thought would be the most understanding isn't fucking there. So I lost my two best friends um, right at, like, the worst point of my life. So um, I actually didn't hear it from them again until my dad passed away. It was the night that he had passed away. And I got two, not even a text or a call. I got a Facebook DM from both of them. Like, how impersonal can you be? Um, but they sent me a DM basically saying, like, I'm. it was like a lengthy thing. Like, I've been thinking about you every day and your dog, even your dog too, and, like, your mom and blah, 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 blah. And I'm just so sorry. And it's like, and so I forget what I said but it was really fucking cold. I said something like, oh, so now that he's dead, you give a shit? Like, it was just, re- it was really, like, really cold. But it's how I felt. Because I'm like, oh, you've been thinking about me through this whole time? Like, 
this whole time that I've been watching my dad's health deteriorate, you've been thinking about me, but you wait until it's too late to be there for me to reach out and tell me that you're sorry. Go fuck yourself. Like, that's not a friend. And you don't get to come pick up the pieces when it's all said and done. Like, you don't get to wait for the dust to settle to come around. Like, no, no, that's not how it fucking works. You know, and here's what this is. If you're going through this right now and you've got some people that are really shysty, life, dude, it is so true what people tell you about you find out who your friends are during like really hard times and also the really good times. That's what people don't talk about. Like when you start chasing your dreams and you start doing different things, people think, well, who the fuck does she think she is? I'm sure there's so many people that roll their eyes every time I post a podcast episode or every time. You know, I post something with my business or like now I'm trying to write a book. So I'm sure there's so many people just like rolling their eyes until they see their brains right now. But guess what? People are going to talk shit no matter what. It's like that quote by Dita Fontes. I was just talking about some or talking about this with someone the other day. You can be, she said, you can be the ripiest, juiciest peach, but there's still going to be someone that hates peaches. And it's so fucking true. It doesn't matter. Like quit trying to fit into a box. Quit trying to people please everybody. It's never going to fucking happen. So do what you want. And usually if they're talking shit, all that is is it's something it's something that you're doing that's triggering in them something that they don't like about themselves. Maybe they always wanted to write a book and they haven't done it. And so that's like hitting a nerve with them, like it's touching on an insecurity. Maybe they've wanted to start a podcast and they haven't fucking done it. So they're irritated anytime I post it because they secretly want to do it too. It's the same thing. So like you find out who your friends are when you're successful and you sure as fuck find out who your friends are when you're going through some shit because I used to be the fun party friend. Hey, let's go do this. Hey, let's do that. I was busy being there for everybody else. And then when it came time for me to need it, when I wasn't the fun party friend anymore and life got real serious, guess what? They weren't there anymore. So if you're dealing with any of this shit in any sort of capacity, it ain't you, sis. It is not you. It is these other shitty people. And it's the same thing too. Misery loves company. People want to see you succeed, but they don't want to see you do better than them. So if you're at a point in your life where maybe you and your friends are going down different roads or maybe, you know, just stupid stuff, like say you don't want to drink anymore, but your friend and you, that's how you always used to bond. Like, oh, but you used to drink with me. What? We're not friends anymore. You can't even drink with me. You can't even have one. Suddenly it becomes about them and it, it they may try and make you look like the asshole. Like, oh, well, you don't even want to drink with me anymore. Like this was our thing. You can't even drink with me. It's like they're not respecting their, your boundaries anymore because now it's triggering something in them. Like, oh, no, I, I don't like what you think you're better than me now. Like they want you to stay on the same level. And I'm not saying if you don't drink or you do drink, like you're any better than the other person, but it's just the fact that if you start trying to better yourself, sometimes people don't want to see you do that because they want to see you stay where they are, like in in, in the same level as them or wherever they're at. Um, Because growth is scary to some people. So that was a tangent I didn't expect to go off on. So let's see what else. Um, So yeah, people will abandon you. So that's another reason that I got involved with a nonprofit because I wanted to make sure that no one felt that way again. Even though I know I can't be everywhere for everyone, it's my way, especially with this podcast now, like 
I feel like I'm reaching more people and I can tell more people like, hey, if you're alone, I can help. If you are in the situation, you need resources, here they are. Like, I just I just want to be in a position where I feel like I'm actively doing that. Um, so yeah, I ended up getting involved with longevity because after my dad passed away, which he was diagnosed in August of 2015, and he passed away in February of 2016. So it was very quick. Um, and after he passed away, um, I wanted to do, cause you know, they have walks for everything, breast cancer and gosh, everything just so many walks even like beer runs you know there's a run for everything so I was like I bet there's a lung cancer run we should do that every year I want to because again I'm like I have to actively be doing something I can't just be idle um which there's nothing wrong with that obviously but for me that's just my outlet I was (laughs) probably attributes a lot to my anxiety where I'm like I can't sit still I must do something right now um if I'm still and I think my thought process too was as long as I'm still doing something and as long as I'm still caring for him in some way he's not really gone. Um, so that's what really kept me going. Um, but to my surprise, as I was looking up lung cancer walks, there weren't any. The closest one was like in Dayton, Ohio. And, um, it looked like there was like 30 people there. So like I said, funding is, I think only like 5% of government funding. And that might actually be generous. I forget the stat on that goes towards lung cancer research. So even though it's like the um, leading cancer killer, it receives the least amount of funding because of like the stigma and, um, all of that shit. So a lot of these nonprofits that start up and try and start these events, they're all grassroots. So they're all people like myself and the girls that I work with that are local people trying to create an event out of nothing, solely on donations and whatever, it's exhausting. It's hard. It's super rewarding and I love it, but it's it's very hard. It's hard to maintain and to keep growing and growing over years and years. It's just it's even though it's an event once a year, you're constantly planning, promoting, trying to spread awareness. It's just a big thing. It's like trying to throw your wedding every year, you know. Um so um a lot of these events will fold because of lack of funding or they just can't sustain it um so there wasn't anything and so I just decided to get on longevity's website and there's a uh, tab that's obviously like get involved so I did that and asked how much do you want to get involved and I basically said immerse me in this world and next thing you know I was having um phone calls with the people that ran the organization and Ironically, there was a team forming in Cincinnati to throw their first 5K in Cincinnati. Um, So they're like, would you want to be on this team? We want to help throw an event. And I was like, this sounds fucking awesome. Especially the Enneagram 7 in me. I was like, yes, 5Ks and events and organizing events. Bet. I'm there. Um, So that was so cool. And I really feel like this organization saved my life. It was a very, very dark time for me. Um, The only other person that I had lost that was that close to me was my grandma. And my family, if you know me, is incredibly small. Like, to me, I basically say that my family is my mom, my dad, 
my sister, her husband, and the kids, like their kids, and my grandma. That's like those are the people that I saw on holidays. Those are the people that I remember being around the most. I have other family, but um, <clears throat> they weren't super present or involved um, a lot of the times. A couple of my cousins were, but um, for me, those were like my, that was like my core, like my, my closest family. And so when we lost my grandma, it was obviously devastating. And then, um, like losing my dad, obviously a parent is super traumatic, especially when I felt like my life hadn't even taken off yet. I'm like, oh my God, he's never gonna meet my husband. Or if I have kids, he'll never see them. Um, I'm never going to have my dad walk me down the aisle, all these things that you think of as a, as a woman, um, which also led to a string of terrible guys that I was just serial dating through my dad's diagnosis, just trying to desperately find the one so they could at least meet my dad before he checked out. And that didn't happen. So, um, where was I going with that? Jesus Christ. Um, God, this is such a ramble, you guys. I'm so sorry. Um, yeah, so, yes. Basically, like, getting involved with these people, like, it was a really dark time for me. And um, I was just trying to stay so busy and just put on a brave face that it wasn't until... It was just, like, you were just trying to get through every day. And I just, like I said, I felt like as long as I was working really, really hard, it felt like he was still here and some strange way like oh or almost like oh if I raise enough money or if I do enough with this organization maybe somehow he'll come back which obviously saying that out loud sounds really crazy but like in your mind you're still in shock and disbelief and you're going through the phases of grief and you're just like still trying to understand like holy fuck is this did this happen I'm the I'm the girl whose dad died of cancer that's the shit that happens to other people. That's not what happens to me. I'm not that girl. You know, like you're trying to rationalize it. Like, wait, am I in a, this is just a really bad dream. There's no way that this really happened. But it happened. Um, so that organization, instead of like immersing myself in alcohol and drugs and other things to self-medicate, I buried myself in this organization. I just feel like it truly saved my life. There was just some really dark times. And then being able to go to the, my first event, um, the day of the event, we had a balloon release. And people would buy balloons that would also go towards the donation. And they were white. And they had blue strings. And then you could have a Sharpie and write messages to people that you'd lost to lung cancer. And... Um, my nieces were there and they let balloons go and stuff. And I remember I had held it together the whole time. It's like I was staying busy, staying busy, working on this event, working on this event, talking with people, being the face of the event with the other girls, like talking to people, thanking them for coming, talking to Brad Johansson. You know, we all spoke before the event, spoke to the crowd. I'm mingling with survivors and hearing their stories and I'm bonding with other people and, you know, talking to a girl that lost her dad, I think, like, the week after I lost mine. Like, it was, like, feeling very seen and feeling like, oh, I'm not alone in this. Other people understand my grief. Other people understand, like, I feel like in some fucked up way I'm home. Um, 
And I remember when the balloons went into the air, I just lost it. Like I just fell apart. And I remember like my best friend Mandy just grabbing me and just holding me and just letting me sob. And then my mom and sister came around me and just like held me. And I have like this really beautiful picture that my friend took of all of us like all of them holding me and it was just like such a powerful moment because it was like wow I did this and then it was just the realization that like all my work and all of my time trying to stay busy powering through this and powering through my grief it's done like I did it now now what and also like oh my god dad look what we just did and you can't see it um it was a lot of a lot of a lot of things that I was feeling at that moment, like being proud, being really sad, realizing why I'm there. Um, and then obviously, like, it was like a, just a beautiful moment of like releasing balloons and like also seeing other people who are missing people that they love um, that were taken way too soon. And it's beautiful and heartbreaking at the same time. Um but I just really feel like I, I just really don't know, not saying that I was like suicidal or anything, but like I don't know how I would have made it through that first year um, without that organization, without feeling like I had another purpose. I stopped. If you've listened to my other podcasts, there was one that I talked about. It's in my first episode when I talk about like how I ended up as knockout beauty. Um, I really wanted the choke a bride and bless her heart. She has no idea to this day, but at the time I was still doing freelance makeup and I was finishing my weddings for the year and I wasn't booking anymore after my dad was diagnosed because everything was just so day to day, month to month. Like I didn't know where I was going to be tomorrow or what was going to happen tomorrow, let alone, um, you know, a year or months down the road. So I just couldn't book people anymore. And like, obviously I knew that there was a really good chance that my dad wasn't going to be there to walk me down the aisle. So like weddings used to be, I'm such a hopeless romantic and I loved doing weddings so much. And if you're any of my brides listening, like being a part of your day was like seriously so magical, like hearing how you met and why you chose the venue and the little details of your day and the significance behind them. And, meeting your family and like people are always like, Oh my God, how did you do weddings? I bet the brides were bitches. No, I never had a bad bride. If anyone was ever a hassle in the wedding party, it was usually a bridesmaid that wanted the day to be about her and was acting like a diva. Um, but even those were few and far between, they were so great. And it's just like, how can you hate a wedding? Like the day is so full of love. Like I know that there's some that like have drama and whatever, but like even the people that, like you would hear bridesmaids talk shit about each other, but like even them, like even the people that don't like each other are coming together for that day because they're celebrating someone's love. And I just always thought that that was a beautiful thing. Um, however, one of the last weddings that I did, I remember calling my mom after because I was like, I think I'm going to choke a bride. I can't do weddings anymore. And she's like, Oh God, what happened? I was just like, this girl had been married. I told this story in my first podcast, but if you didn't listen, I'll tell you again. Um, <laughs> she had been married twice before, which again, no shade, don't give a shit, but she had, she was lucky enough to have her dad at both weddings. Right. So like, here I am thinking you've had your dad at both weddings. I probably won't even have mine at one. And 
the whole time she was bitching about something her dad didn't pay for. And I was finishing up this last girl's makeup and I just could not get out of there fast enough. Cause I'm like, I'm gonna choke this chick. Like you are so lucky to have him here and you don't even realize it. And I will probably never have my dad walk me down the aisle and it's not her fault. Like I know it's all relative. Like, you know, you can't imagine like you, like we all take things for granted. Right. Like I just spent time with my mom today. I'm sure I'll look back on this day someday and just be like, man, I wish I would have hung around a little longer. You know, ever not you, you no one's perfect. No one understands what you have or what you took for granted until like you realize you've taken it for granted. It's just that's how life works. But I was still like, look, <laughs> I can't do this shit anymore, man. It's already hard enough being here because it's an emotional day. And I mean, if you're like most girls, like you fantasize about that growing up, like when's it going to be my day and my dad's going to walk me down the aisle and give me away and I wonder if he'll cry like when he saw my sister in her dress and oh, he was so funny on her wedding day. He was she got married in Vegas and he was like a robot man. He was so stoic and <laughs> just looked so nervous. And he really wasn't talking at all. And I remember trying to joke with him and stuff and he was just being real quiet. And I obviously did my hair, my sister's hair and makeup and my mom's makeup and stuff and mine and when my sister came out of the bathroom, he was okay. But then when I put on her veil, he cried. And he said, I was just pretending that you were in a, you were just going to the prom the whole time. But the veil is what, you know, made it real. And it was just so funny just seeing his face as he loved my brother-in-law. He would always say that he was his best friend. So, like, he was excited but it was just so funny to see him like that. And I remember always thinking, like, I wonder what he'll do with me, especially since I'm the baby in the family. Like, he's going to cry. I wonder what he'll say to my husband. I wonder I wonder what we'll dance to. Like, I want to make him do a funny dance. I would just always think about that. So just know if you've ever asked me to do a wedding since my dad passed away, there's a big part of my heart that always remembers those times and it was like some of the best times of my life showing up to all the different venues and all the different fancy hotel rooms I remember one downtown that had like a crazy ass terrace it was like a penthouse suite or something it was wild and just so many cool things I got to do with you guys and amazing people I used to meet and there's always like this big part of me that wants to do it again but I just don't know that my heart is ready yet um, so just know that if I've ever been hesitant or apprehensive or I don't know if I'll do weddings again, that's why, um, I'm still healing. It's not that I don't want to be a part of your day. I'm more than anything do, but I just have to be a little careful with my heart and my emotions right now. So I'm not just like a blubbering mess at your wedding. Um, <laughs> cause who wants that? Oh, don't worry. That, that tiny little woman sobbing in the corner that's just my makeup artist it's fine yeah she has mascara running down her face and looks like something out of a horror film but don't worry she's gonna make you look beautiful <laughs> like that's not great um so anyway like I said I'm not gonna get into like a lot of stories with my dad but I will tell you that he was diagnosed in August of 2015 passed away on February 24th of 2016 
um, which is another reason if, I mean, pre-COVID, the fight for air climb every year in Cincinnati always happens in February. So like lung cancer month was usually when we would have our 5K. We started moving it up a little earlier in the year, so we'd have better weather, and so it'd be a little bit warmer. Um, But it's really cool that in February they do the fight for air climb at the Karoo Tower, and it's for lung disease. And basically you run up all the stairs, the stairwell. I think it's like 48 flights, 48 or 49 um, flights of steps um, of the Karoo Tower downtown. Um, and it's a huge event. It's really cool, too, because they have first responders, like fire fire um, fighters that run up in full gear, which is incredible. And they do that at the end, and that's just super dope, like amazing that they can do that um, because it is hard as shit without all that equipment. So, like, I really commend them for that. It's, like, really impressive. Um, so I would always do that every February as my little way to, like, honor my dad in February too. Um, but that's probably not going to happen this time around because thanks a lot, coronavirus. Um, I just heard Cardi B in my head as soon as I said that. Coronavirus. Shit is getting real. Um, so yeah, that's another reason I do that. Um, because he passed away in February. Um, before he was diagnosed, I mean, if you knew my dad, you you knew that like he got hurt at work when I was, I think, seven and could never go back to work after that. He had like messed up his shoulder and his back really bad. But like other than that, like you would have never known, um, that anything was wrong with him. Like if he talked to him or whatever, like, you know, if he was standing too long cooking, it would get to him. He couldn't do like manual labor and like other stuff like that because of like his injuries, which is a whole other story. Um, we'd be here all night. This is already too long. Um, so he was never in like perfect health, but he was fine. Like he had like sinus issues and his shoulder would hurt or he'd be like, Oh man, it's about to rain. I can feel it in my back. I can feel it in my shoulder. Blah, blah, blah. But, like, typical things that, like, as people are aging, never anything that would be alarming. So I had been moved out at this point, and I would come once a week to go boxing um, with my trainer at the time in Harrison, and I would do it as, like, a two-for-one, like, every Thursday. Like, okay, cool, I'm going to go box. I'm going to bring my laundry to my mom's, my mom and dad's so I can do laundry for free, throw it in while I go box, come back, fold my laundry, and then chill out with my parents. I get to visit with them too. So every time that I was coming over, obviously I was gone for a longer period of time than my mom. My mom's seeing him like decline every day. So it's not as like drastic as like when I'm gone a week and then I come back and I'm like, what the fuck? Um, I remember coming over one day and my mom ended up taking him to the PAC center in Harrison, which is like a emergency, like an urgent care type deal. And um, when I got into the house, so my mom, I love you, but she does this thing where if she knows something that's going to derail you off of something that you're doing, she's not going to tell you about it until like said event is over. So I was about to start this new job in logistics and I was convinced that she knew something was up with my dad. I was like, I remember cornering her that day because when I showed up, he looked gray, like he just did not look good at all. And I was like, Mom, what's going on with Dad? And she's like, I don't know, Rachel, what do you mean? And I was just like, is he dying? Like, what's going on with him? And she was just like, I don't know, Rachel, if he is, it's news to me. So I was like, you wouldn't, you wouldn't keep that from me because I'm about to, because you're worried that I wouldn't, because 
and it's warranted. If I knew that something was going on with my dad, I probably would have never started my job. So I knew that she knew that about me. Like, are, are you not telling me this because you know that I won't go to my first day? Like, I'll call in and just be like, fuck this job. Um, I got bigger things to deal with, bigger fish to fry. And she was like, no, Rachel, I would never keep something like that from you. Like, no, I'm not like that. I would tell you. So it was just like a couple, which they were lovely. Don't ever go to the PAC Center for an emergency in Harrison. Sorry, not sorry. Um, His salt levels were so dramatically low. Um, They did like chest x-rays and a bunch of stuff on him and sent him home and just said like his salt was low or something, which I now know like can kill you. Um, And honestly, I think my dad's doctor even said something like he basically should have died that day um, because his levels were so low. So that was great. Um, But it was just like a couple weeks later that we got the diagnosis. Like my dad went to the hospital and got a bunch of tests. And then my dad like three-way called me and my sister from the hospital. So my mom's like, he's not coming home. Um, We got to stay for some more testing, but dad wants to talk to you. And he said, oh, girls, so I got something to tell you when he got choked up. I just knew that I wasn't good. And he said that they found like something on his lung and they were going to test it and figure it out. And, um, yeah. And I remember I was home alone. I was at my parents. I was thinking I was waiting for them to come home. And I just sat there in the empty house and just fucking cried. And then I think I went to my sister's. Um, But then when he told us, like, the actual diagnosis, like, a week or so later, he was, like, in the living room with all of us because we'd always – my family and I used to get together for, like, Sunday night football, and we'd watch every – well, Sunday football. We'd watch every game, the 1 o'clock game, the 4 o'clock game, the night game, and then, you know, we'd be there Monday night for the Monday night game, too, at my parents' house, and then Thursday night game, like, we were such a football family. We had a fantasy league. Um, we'd spend all those days together. So it was like one night that, um, we went over and my dad told us like his diagnosis, he said it was stage four and told us basically what they were going to do. They were going to start doing this treatment. And we were all super hopeful because he was with this doctor. I remember my dad being like so excited because he's like, man, he's been on the news. He does this like experimental shit. That's like, um, like new and blah, blah, blah. And he's like had people that are that not that he hasn't cured, but they were, you know, where I'm at now and they're healthy and getting around and, you know, whatever. And we were so optimistic. And like my sister knew the whole time because she like did a deep dive into the research and she knew how bad it was. She had read all the stats and I, I was in denial the whole time. Like, there's no fucking way. There's no way that this is going to happen. Like, it's not going to happen. Um, because up until that point, you would have never even known that he was sick. Just, it was just like overnight, all of a sudden he just started looking, not looking good. And then he would cough. I remember one time he coughed so much. He like went to the kitchen and it sounded like he got sick in the sink. And I, my face must, must've just said it all. Cause he came around the corner and looked at me and said, I'm okay, bugs. But I could tell by the look on his face that it scared him too. Like, that he knew it wasn't okay. Um, And that was before he was diagnosed, too. Before we knew. So, 
like I said, like once you, once there was symptoms, like it was already in the late stage. And, um, so they were going to do this treatment. They were going to do some chemo and radiation, I think. And then there was this thing. So basically like the, the thing was they were trying to shrink his like cancer. And then there's something called maintenance where they would give you this medicine to maintain it. And basically, even as long as like, even if the tumors weren't shrinking, that was still a good thing because as long as it wasn't growing, basically that was a plus. So that's the whole point of maintenance and like lung cancer treatment is trying to just keep it at bay or keep it um, from spreading for as long as you can. So like trying to live with it, like they want it to get to the point where Um, They have drugs available that are, like, treating a chronic condition, such as, like, HIV um, or, like, diabetes. So those are, like, conditions that aren't a death sentence anymore. It's something that you can um, live with and kind of, um, like, you can live with it. You can treat it. It's not, it's a, yeah, you control it like a chronic disease. I don't know what word I'm looking for, but it's not coming to me. So basically that's what they're trying to get lung cancer to be like. So this was like the maintenance of kind of trying to keep the cancer where it was. And it was working for a while and then it wasn't working. And then they told us that he would have like, that there was still two options. There was like this other pill that they could give him and there was something else that they could do. And they said, um, we just need him to build his strength a little bit more before we can do these things. But like, even if he doesn't, if he doesn't get strong enough for these medications, like, he probably is looking at six months. And I remember being so devastated, thinking, oh, my God, it went from five years to six months. And I remember, like, really freaking out. And my sister and I went and visited him um, this the Friday before he passed away. And he was so funny. They gave him these like medicinal marijuana pills. And it was so funny because anytime I was like about to leave the house, if I was visiting or I was going to leave the hospital, he'd be like, why? The show's about to start. And he would take his pills and I'd be like, okay, I'll stick around for a while because he was about to be really funny. Um, And he was being just so funny. We had such a good time with him. And, like, it's such a gift to look back on that now because now I realize that was the last time that I got to spend with my dad, like, really joking around because the next time I saw him, um, he couldn't talk or anything. And that's when he passed away. Um, So, yeah. So, like, we ended up, like, joking around and, like, whatever. And it was so fun. So I remember, like, he was going to take those pills and we hung out. And then growing up, we always did this thing um, where, like, if I went to, like, give him a kiss goodnight – I would like touch his shoulder real quick and be like, got you last. And I'd run up the steps and like try and get to my room. So it was like a race. Like once you were in your room, you were safe. But like say I was halfway to my room, he could like get to the steps and like touch my arm or like touch my leg or, you know, just tap me like tag and be like, got you last. And I'd be like, no. And then it would. So it was like this like fun little race thing that my family did before bedtime. And it was like especially fun with my dad because he was really quick and super funny about it. So, um, my sister and I went to leave the hospital that night, the last Friday that we saw him. And 
my sister it was funny she did it first she <laughs> oh I want to tell this part so bad but I'm saving it for if I get married um I'll touch on it though so my sister my sister we both went to kiss him goodbye and hug him goodbye and she tapped him and said gotcha last and he laughed and I said got you last and then that ended up being like um one of our little our last interactions with him which is like man I haven't said that in a really long time that just like made me cry sorry um because it just like was just one of those like sweet things growing up that was just our thing you know and like we didn't know at the time that that was going to be the last time um but the funniest part of that and like my dad's fashion is my sister said something he was just like okay he's like yeah tell ryan i said hi and i love him or something and uh and I said, what do you want me to tell my husband? Um, <laughs> and I didn't have a boyfriend, obviously not a husband, so it was just a joke. And then he said something really um, hilarious, but I'm going to save that for whoever my future husband is. Like, hey, by the way, this is the message from my dad. Um, but just know if you know my dad that it did not disappoint. It was really funny. And um, yeah, that was it. And then the next time I saw him, um, we didn't know, we didn't know, like I said, like he still had options left. We were still told worst case scenario, like, okay, if these, if he doesn't get strong enough for these treatments, then it's going to be six months, but you know, we still had options. And, um, the doctor didn't think that we were out of options yet, or he was near the end at all. Um, so I remember like being at my mom's house, getting my car fixed or something. And I was waiting for them to call or something. I forget what was going on, but I was at my parents' house for some reason. I intercepted a call from a nurse and she was basically telling us that we needed to get to the hospital. And my mom and sister were like, oh yeah, yeah, that's the nurse that calls all the time. Like it's never anything, yada, yada. And then I was like, no, I really think that we need to go. And then sure enough, like we got to the hospital and his doctor was there and basically told us like it had spread everywhere. It was all over his body. And obviously we were in disbelief because we're like, he just had this scan and everything was working and there was all these options. And he was just like, yeah, this just really took over though. Like sometimes. And that was like one of the risks, like once you're treating the cancer, especially with lung cancer, it gets really aggressive. So like it'll work, work, work. But then sometimes it's like when it doesn't work anymore, it just gets fucking pissed and just goes everywhere. Like, I don't think there was anywhere that he didn't have it at that point. Um, and it was extra fucked up because he was only like my sister was pregnant with my youngest niece, Paris, and she was due on St. Patty's Day. And he only missed her by a few weeks. And that was like my dad's whole thing at the time was like, you know, when he got diagnosed, my sister like found out that she was pregnant right around the same time or like just before he got diagnosed. So like through my sister's whole pregnancy, like her dad's sick. And then as the doctor's telling us, like he has to go to hospice care. Like I'm looking at my sister's pregnant belly, like, Oh my God, he's never going to be my niece. And then I'm thinking, oh, wow, 
he's really never going to meet my kids if I have them. He's never going to meet my husband. Like, this is the end of the road now. Like, this is it. And, um, yeah, that was, like, his thing through the whole, which I know, like, if my sister hadn't been expecting, like, my dad would have never lived as long as he did, even though, like, six months obviously isn't long. Um, because he just kept talking, like, I got to see that baby. I got to meet that baby. I got to meet that baby. And he just missed her. Um, so yeah, but we all were there with him that night, I guess Paris included cause she was in her mama's belly, but, um, we all got to be there to say goodbye and hold his hand and kiss his forehead and tell him how much we loved him. And that was it. So I don't really know how to wrap this up, but it was just one of those things like it's hard to talk about. I'm sure it's not easy to listen to. I mean, how could it be? Um, but it's one of those things that it's just like this is really real. Like even though it's not a smoker's disease, that like increases your chances, obviously. So if you're still smoking, knock that shit off. Um, if you know someone who's like family member has lung cancer, don't be a dick and don't buy into the stigma. Um, I don't care what sort of cancer it is. It's not, nobody deserves it. So don't ever try and justify that in some sort of way, unless it's Jeffrey Dahmer, then okay. He probably deserved it, but like nobody else does. That's not a serial killer. Of course I go straight to that because I'm obsessed with true crime, but Anyway, it's important for me to share my story or at least a part of it. I don't even know if this was helpful um, or if this was just like a fucking rambling monologue with fuck thrown in it way too many times. Um, But I just think it's important to share my story and for people to know why or to know that this disease is really aggressive and that it's not just smokers if you have lungs you can get it like like I said the other women that I worked with like they their moms had never smoked a day in their life 60 to 65 percent of people are non-smoky smokers or haven't smoked in years like those aren't smokers getting this I mean sure yes but majority of those people more than half aren't smokers so like stop treating people like they did it to themselves it's not cool at all. Um, hopefully next year in 2021, we can get back to throwing our 5Ks. They did an online one, but like, I don't know, man. Sometimes this time of year, and that's the other thing too with grief. Like, I was pretty naive with my friend that had lost her mom because I remember thinking that she had been gone seven years. And I remember, I was never a dick about it, but I remember thinking, I wonder why she's still so upset after seven years. Like, shouldn't it get easier after seven years? No, it doesn't. It's been almost five years for my dad. February will be five. And you, it still feels like it happened yesterday. It still feels fresh because there's still things that they're always missing. My dad never saw KO Beauty. He doesn't know I have a podcast. He doesn't know that I'm trying to write a book. You know, there's always things like you never run out of things that you wish you could tell them. Like when I had my home invasion, I couldn't call my dad. You know, he's the one that always made me feel the most safe. I couldn't run to him. Um, 
there's never a point, even if they're super old and gray, there's never a point that you're ready to say goodbye that you love some that mm. to someone that you love so much. It's just it's not it's just not a thing. And I swear I didn't fart. That's just this leather chair. <laughs> I'm just moving around in it. I'm so sorry. Um but that's the thing is like that's why I'm always like nobody's perfect but just try and be nice to people man because you never know what they're going through um there's people that are dealing with shit every day that you know nothing about so my mom used to always say um she used to always tell me growing up if like someone cut her off on the highway or something and I got mad or be like why didn't you get mad about that she would always say Rachel you never know they might be on their way maybe his wife's having the baby or you know, maybe they're on their way to say goodbye to someone or that person just lost their job or you never know. I just look at every little car like their own little world, like everyone's got their own little world going on. You don't know what's going on in it. And it's true. That's always stuck with me. Like you don't know what someone's got going on. And like I'm sure we're all dicks at some point in time, you know, misdirected anger and what have you. But especially this year, this has been a dumpster fire of a year, but um just be nice, man. And then, and never put a, a time limit on when you think someone should be over something either. And I'll tell you something else too. It's not the days that you think are going to be the hardest that are the hardest. Like, of course, this time of year, like people are always like, are you excited for the holidays? And truth be told, I haven't given a shit about the holidays since my dad passed away. Like to me, it's just another day. It is what it is. I try and get excited about it because, like, I obviously still get to celebrate with the family that I have, and I try not to take that for granted. And it's fun to get to see my nieces, like, open up presents and talk about Santa and stuff. Like, it makes me feel like a kid again, but it's, like, a who gives a shit kind of thing. Like, my, I still am missing something. Like, my heart still hurts. There's still something that's, like, missing each year. So it's painful, but it's the days that you don't expect like father's day sucks my dad's birthday sucks like all those milestones are really hard but sometimes it's the days where you're at the grocery store and you can't remember that spice your dad used to use or that chicken he used to buy or hey dad how did you make this or um like recently my dad loved muhammad ali man he's the one that got me into boxing um I grew up watching Tyson fights with him, and I remember actually watching, like, the Tyson Holyfield, <laughs> that uh, infamous fight with him, and I saw something. My dad was the hardest guy to shop for, and I got an email from this brand that I love called Super Rare. I have a ton of their stuff, and they're, like, a fight brand out in L.A. They're so awesome, um, but they just launched. They've had, like, a... Bruce Lee line and a Muhammad Ali line for a while, but they just added to the Muhammad Ali line and added a bathrobe to it. Um, and so it's like meant to be like a replica of like his fight robe, like when he first started out and it's so dope and it says Muhammad Ali in the back and it's white and it's just, it's sick. And I just saw that and I was like, man, that would have been so cool to get dad. And he was always the type he would, you could get the most obscure gift and he'd guess it. And I sent a screenshot to my mom and sister like, damn, how cool would this have been to get dad? He would have never guessed this. And it's like, it's shit like that. That'll kick you in the gut. It's times like 
I needed to learn how to use his power drill not too long ago and I couldn't call him up and ask. Um, or maybe it's just like a random day where you hear a song. Like I love John Mellencamp and Billy Joel and it's because I remember growing up listening to it with my dad. He loved both of them. And I remember going into a store and whenever I hear River of Dreams by Billy Joel, I think of my dad. And like, that's such an old song. You don't hear it out. And I walked into a store like right as it started and I had just been thinking of my dad. And it's like, those are the days. Like you can't call him and be like, you'll never believe what song I just heard, you know? Um, So yeah, this is just my TED talk, I guess, about lung cancer facts, why I got involved with longevity. They do amazing work. They're not one of these organizations that profit. Um, Like what you donate really does make a difference. It really does help. Um, Hearing the stories of survivors and it really sucks this year not being able to have a walk, obviously, because people, especially with lung diseases, are especially high risk with coronavirus. Um... But, like, being around these people and seeing how much, like, that support and, like, even just as simple as, like, how excited the survivors are when they get their green shirt. Because they're like, fuck yeah, I'm a survivor. And they wear that with, like, so much pride. And then, like, to hear their stories, like, they're badasses. And then just, like, to meet other people, too, that have gone through what I've gone through. It's just, like, the way... the the way you feel when you're connected to people through like trauma, I don't know. It's just next level. And it really sucks not being around them this year, but it really does make a difference to those people and to all of us. And yeah. And I mean, this is the season for family and you know, don't lose sight of what the holidays are really for. I know I just kind of shit on them, but it's because I'm missing things that are important. Don't get caught up in the, my boyfriend didn't buy me a Tiffany necklace, so I'm going to break up with him. That shit doesn't fucking matter. Like, hug your mom, hug your grandma, hug your grandpa, hug your dad twice for me. Fuck, never let him go. Like, don't forget about what fucking matters. I know we're all caught up trying to keep up with the Joneses on Instagram and constantly comparing ourselves to other people and what Brandy down the street's doing and, you know, whatever. Like, who gives a shit? Like, what's important is right in front of you and it doesn't cost money. So, like, I know that this year's been hard and, like, we're restricted with travel and stuff, but, like, pick up the phone and FaceTime your mom. You know, just to say hi, not because you need 20 bucks, like just without agenda, just just love and relish the people and relish in the time that you have with the people that are around you right now. Because the fact of the matter is tomorrow's not guaranteed. And I know that's so cliche to say, but like, I mean, God, I was I was freaking out over six months with my dad and I had just a couple of days Um. So life comes at you fast and you just have to soak up all the memories and the times that you have with people now and stop worrying about all this superficial bullshit. No one gives a fuck about a Louis Vuitton purse. (laughs) Honestly, I think they're ugly anyways. Honestly, straight up. I've seen like one cool one, but like 
I would still rather spend thousands of dollars on like a sick ass trip or something. Um, and also when you die, no one's going to be like, oh, remember Becky? She had that really neat limited edition Louis Vuitton. <laughs> like no one fucking cares. No one cares. And this is turning into a rant. And I'm sorry, but this is everything. Um, this was my lung cancer podcast that I was really trying to put off. But I know that it's lung cancer month and I would feel like a piece of shit if I didn't do this, but it's just been an especially hard month to talk about this stuff. Um, luckily, I have some really amazing people in my life now that I can lean on when things get hard and I've learned to be a little bit more vulnerable when I'm having a tough day. I have the sweetest guy ever in my life right now. One day I was just having a really bad dad day and I couldn't even talk about it he kept asking me what was wrong and I was like I can't talk about it because I'll cry and then he showed up with flowers and candy and ice cream and just held me and let me cry and it was like the most amazing thing that anyone's ever done for me um and that feels really good I've never had that before and it's honestly that simple you guys like you don't have to buy anything crazy it's just the little things and just being there. That's all you got to do. Um, so yeah, this was just really important to me. And I knew that as hard as this is to talk about, that I just had to do it. Especially since I couldn't do the 5K this year and share my story there. I just had to do it here on, now that I have this platform. But hopefully this made sense. Hopefully this wasn't just like two hours of just rambling all over the place. It didn't make sense. It was just drowning on and on and just like this puddle of depression but I mean that's life and that's my story and it's a part of who I am and it's a part of KO Beauty because if it wasn't for my dad KO Beauty wouldn't even be a thing because um, he's the one that got me into boxing he's the one that taught me to stick up for everybody and to fight for the little guy and to not bully and to fight against what's wrong and stand up for what's right. He was like my biggest fan. Um, But I mean, aside from my mom, obviously, and my sister. But I mean, he was always the one just like always fighting for the underdog. And I feel like now with my lung cancer work, that's that torch has been passed on to me. So I hope that this wasn't totally terrible to listen to. And I hope that gives you like a little glimpse into um, a little bit more about why Knockout Beauty is Knockout Beauty and why my message is the way that it is and why I am the way I am and why this month is so important to me and why my nonprofit work is so important to me. And I really, really hope that we can get back at it at 2021. And I hope I can see you guys all there and give you a big fat hug and a lot of tasty treats because we always have really good snacks there. Um, (laughs) And you know, I love my snacks. But all right, guys, I think I've talked long enough about the pound this beer and... (laughs) forget about this subject for a little while and um that's all thanks for listening 
I hope you guys are doing out okay out there. I know shit's getting kind of crazy. Um, but you got this. You're a fucking knockout. And I'll catch you guys next time. Bye.